Just a quick message before the episode starts. Uh, we had some big technical difficulties and problems on this episode that unfortunately, due to the nature of the way we record the show and the time frame we have to get it done, didn't allow for us to re-record anything. So I tried to piece everything together as well as I could for you guys. I recorded a couple comments in the podcast question of the week because those unfortunately went missing. So that's why you'll hear me a couple times throughout the episode. But I hope you still enjoy this episode as much as all the other ones, and we look forward to hearing from you in the comments section on the website and on the forums. This is episode 103 of Alohomora for September 27th, 2014. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Alohomora. I'm Eric Skull. And I'm Kat Miller. And our very special fan guest today is one that I believe all of you will know. It is Cheryl Klein, the executive editor at Arthur A. Levine Books. Yay! Yay! Thanks for joining us, Cheryl. We're so excited to have you here. It is so fun to be here. It's just a blast of the past to go back to this book. And um, this is the first of the Harry Potter books that I worked on. And so rereading it, I was uh, taken back to 2003 and, and thinking like, oh, man, we left that comment in there and stuff like that. <laughs> so and, and there's a hyphen that I, I actually wrote down like, oh, why did we leave this hyphen in there? We should take a second look at that hyphen. Oh, my so. gosh. What, what page is this hyphen on? I now yeah. I need to know. Um, will, we, will we get to it in the chapter? <laughs> It, it's uh, it's one of the references to potted plant is oh, hyphenated. Yeah. And, I'm, and I was like, why is that hyphenated? And I have a feeling there was probably good reason for it at the time, but I don't remember anymore. Okay, so fascinating. We'll take a look at this. <laughs> this. This is the kind of thing I obsess over personally. So I um, started working at Arthur A. Levine Books, which is an imprint of Scholastic in 2000, um, shortly after Goblet of Fire was published. I was Arthur's editorial assistant. And um, I worked on books three, I'm sorry, books five, six, and seven. Um, and my title in the last two was more or less uh, continuity editor, which meant that my job was to keep track of the overall, what we call the style Bible for the series, making sure that like every time Birdie Bot's Every Flavor Beans comes up, for instance, that every flavor is not hyphenated. And it's B-O-T-T apostrophe S, not S apostrophe, and so on. And um, and I also tried to keep track of like what all the various magics were, you know. So if somebody said um, "leva corpus," that it, it that there was that the it was different from "mobile corpus," and that the spells always operated in the right way. Cool. So and I, and I was I was backed up on that by a huge team of like copy editors and everything too. And my boss was the actual editor of the series who was talking to J.K. Rowling and everything. But. Um, but yes, I do obsess over things like hyphenation in, in yeah. phrases like potted plants. Because oh, that's yeah, my no, job. that's, that's yeah. totally cool. That's, yeah. that's really cool. That really brings up the question for me. I wanted to know, like, how many people would you say then? I mean, I know you said it was a big team, but like, how many people had, you know, their eyes kind of combing through Joe's words before the book was published, like to, you know, do things like this? Um, editorially, I think there were probably about 10 of us on both sides of the Atlantic. 10 to 12 Uh yeah like we were we were working with the team at bloomsbury as well Mm -hmm. so that's just awesome it was pretty amazing (laughs) (laughs) yes we were very aware that if we got anything wrong everybody would let us know about it oh we are (laughs) because you know like a lot of the books i edit like um they have you know ten thousand, twenty thousand readers something like that and that's great (laughs) we're thrilled with all the readers we get but with these we had sort of like i think a guarantee of 
I, I don't remember the exact print run numbers, but I think maybe the last one, it was like 12 million first printing or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we were very aware of the audience that was out there as soon as the book came out. Well, I think the listeners of this show will particularly appreciate that because they love to pick us apart when we miss something. So oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. I mean, not that we mind. I'm not like saying they're bad or anything. You know, we love yeah. them. Anyway, um, what Hogwarts house are you? I am a Ravenclaw. Yes. Yes. Structure, you know, yes. little uh, bits of knowledge, mm-hmm. all of those very Ravenclaw-y things. Uh, so. Awesome. Well, we just want to take a moment to remind all of you listeners out there that this week we are going to be discussing Chapter 25 of Order of the Phoenix, The Beetle at Bay. But before we do that, we want to get to some comments on our discussion from last week. Uh, where we discussed Chapter 24 of Order of the Phoenix. So there is an ongoing conversation now about um, Sirius and his continued actions in front of Harry to Harry about whether or not he really is, a I don't know, a good father figure or godfather. This comment comes from the giant squid saying uh, the dialogue is actually about Lupin because Michael always asks, well, where's Lupin in this book? Where's Lupin in this book? So the comment from the the giant squid says, Lupin finally gets a few lines. It happens on page 527. But they're so awesome that I'm going to put them in this comment. Quote, Harry, I know you don't like Snape, but he is a superb Occlumens, and we all, Sirius included, want you to learn to protect yourself. So work hard, all right? Lupin is the godfather Harry needs. Lupin is fostering a relationship between enemies, mending bridges, and teaching a younger generation to look past people's faults in order to accomplish a common goal. Sirius only behaves like a stubborn, slighted child and actively perpetuates Snape hate. Lupin even compliments Snape. I think it's important that Lupin also says that Sirius included wants Harry to do this. I feel like Lupin and Sirius had a bit of a heart-to-heart where Lupin put Sirius a bit in his place, so Lupin tells Harry this is in a roundabout fashion by including Sirius's name specifically. Most importantly, Lupin addresses Harry's concerns, he reassures him, shows him that there are people supporting him, and offers him advice all in one sentence. Lupin is the greatest, and he deserves a much bigger moment than this. We did, uh, last chapter was the occlumency chapter, and so there was a lot of interesting stuff between Sirius and Snape and Harry uh, going on. Yeah, um, I mean, I think everybody in this situation is trying to do what they think is right, but they're doing it in the worst manner they possibly can. Mm. Um, you know, like like Snape knows he has to do this, but he's doing it with complete... Um, the the least goodwill he can possibly muster <laughs> and 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 just when i was when i was listening to you read this comment i was thinking about how um how serious is really like the bad boy uncle kind of you know that he's like mm-hmm. the uh the one that you want to hang out with because you know he's going to like give you your first sip of beer or something like that <laughs> <laughs> but um and, and you're gonna have a good time with him and he's gonna say outsta- outrageous things and you can be like oh my gosh did you hear what uncle Sirius said um to your parents afterward but uh, right. but but i think the commenter is right that lupin is the sort of person the cool-headed person that um that Harry really needs in this situation. He's sort of Dumbledore Jr. or something. And, I, and uh, <laughs> I only assume that James was like closer to Sirius altogether and they had a good time when they were younger. And so that's why he he went with the uh, 
He went with the reckless godfather rather than the safe one, maybe. We um, also in the last chapter had the incident, well, well, where uh, Sirius gives Harry the mirror, but he doesn't open it. This Ugh. comment comes from Puff and Proud. Uh, they say, the mirror... Doesn't everyone have one thing they truly regret doing or not doing, even though the right answer was in front of you the whole time and you just never saw it? Opportunity missed. Wrong choice. Something that replays in your mind that when you think about it, you want to kick yourself in the head. I think, <laughs> I think that is the mirror for Harry. <laughs> Any, anything that Cheryl had a problem with, they fixed. They changed. <laughs> I think that's actually probably true <laughs> uh, for, the, for the purpose of, well, I mean, I mean, that, I mean, not that just because I had a problem with it, it got fixed, but, um, but the, I, right. I don't have a problem with most of the things she does. And I think that, um, in this case, just the, uh, the, the sadness of the whole thing. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's one of his first, um, it, I mean, this is a book where Harry's really operating as an adult for the first time, you know, and seeing the mm-hmm. feet of clay of everybody. And I think this is his, his real feet of clay moment too you know he his first adult mistake that he makes is um perhaps you know taking off on his own to go to the department of magic without or department of mysteries without checking with Sirius or anyone else first and it doesn't go well Mm -hmm. and um so i think this is just like another one of those adult mistakes maybe who um who would you guys give the other mirror to if you had this how do you mean who who would you who would you give the other mirror to if you had a, if you had a oh, set oh like for somebody to like keep in touch with this yeah uh probably my mom aww because yeah, I, I I forget to like call her sometimes so like if I just had a mirror in like I don't know one of the clearly a common room I was gonna uh, say not the house. bedroom yeah not anywhere no but you know just the, like I could like yeah so she could check in so that would be I would give it to my mom oh. That's sweet. My best friend just had a baby, so I'd probably give it to her so I could check in with her and the baby. But oh. on the other hand, like we already text photos of the baby and things like pretty much twenty four seven. So so it's like we already have the mirrors, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. The wizarding technology was ahead of iPhones, basically. Um, so we we actually had some comments. We always say, uh, you know, the comments are split. We have the main site, and then we also have the forums. And we love everyone who, who goes over and, and comments at length on the uh, Alohomore forums. But the last couple episodes, we haven't mentioned com- or brought in comments from them. So here's uh, two comments uh, that happened over on the forums. Firstly, from Honey Duke's Empire uh, username. And they say, here's something crazy I never thought of before. Maybe Dumbledore thinks having Snape teach Harry would be good because it's a way for the two to try and get along by working together towards a common goal. It does make sense for Harry and Snape to learn to get along because they're ultimately on the same side of this war. It reminds me of what Dumbledore tried to do with Sirius and Snape. Unfortunately, as we've seen, this can't work if they're unwilling to cooperate. Mm. Um, So there was some questions, I believe, if I'm recalling the discussion correctly last week, uh, Cheryl, that, you you know, why didn't Dumbledore teach Harry occlumency? Because clearly Snape is so antagonistic. So would Dumbledore, have, you know, would it have been smarter for Dumbledore to do it himself? I, I um, mean, of course it would have been smarter, but it's Dumbledore. Yeah. I don't know. Right. He, he, he doesn't always take full responsibility for and his things. Isn't yeah. he trying to avoid Harry in general here just because of the whole communicating with Voldemort thing? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, trying to teach him occlumency would be completely 
like the opposite of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yes. our uh, last comment here from last week's discussion comes from Minerva Lupin on the forums, and they they have a really uh, good comment here. Uh, my first thought when reading this chapter was whether or not occlumency would even have worked for Harry. We can all agree that this is not a normal situation. Voldemort and Harry's mind are connected, uh, presumably via the Horcrux, so what Voldemort and Harry are doing can't really be called legitimacy. So occlumency would possibly not be be able to stop this connection from happening. But then I thought, why would J.K. Rowling bother with legitimacy and occlumency at all if this would not work for Harry? Uh, So far, everything she wrote in the books has had a use, even if a small part, so I do not believe that she would make mention of occlumency, much less have a full chapter and many others that follow concerning this, just for the simple fact of adding it in. It is quite possible that it might have been able to help Harry, but to get around it, chose to have him not master it. Then again, maybe she just used this occlumency stuff to throw us readers out on a loop (laughs) and not have us suspect the Horcrux connection and that nothing can really help Harry with keeping Voldemort out of his head. Whoa, okay. Uh, Recap? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like that was such a confusing comment. No, that comment is perfect. It just says Harry, Harry would not, even if Harry had learned... Occlumency. We learn he fails miserably um, to grasp it. Could be Snape, could be Harry's fault, who cares? The idea is that it wouldn't have protected Harry anyway. Because, because of the Horcrux. Because of the hor- because the yeah. Horcrux is Got not it. your standard form of mind reading. Got it. That okay. And Dumbledore knew Dumbledore suspected rather the Horcrux connection. Mm-hmm. So if he so that goes back to why why did Dumbledore ask him to do this in the previous thing? And and I think that would lend weight to the theory that Dumbledore wanted Snape and Harry perhaps to build a relationship. Um, mm-hmm. Or, uh, I mean, it's also a case, just the overall experience of Occlumency is another case of Harry kind of venturing into adult territory. And in this case, like being able to control yourself and control your mind and um, sort of failing miserably at it, <laughs> as he does quite often throughout this book, as we will see in this, uh, in this coming chapter. Um, you know, in, in the ways that teenagers always fail at things, we, that we all fail at things, you know, when yeah. you're first learning um, to control yourself, to get with a girl, whatever it is. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so it's another sort of feet of clay moment. Well, uh, I said that was our last comment. It certainly is, but we do uh, want to do a shout out. Um, we heard from Diskid. Uh, not dad kid, disc kid. I'm going to keep making that <laughs> joke until everybody laughs. We heard from this kid. Um, this kid is, is, is somebody who on Pottermore was sorted into, was actually a, a four-way hat stall, Cheryl. Whoa. Whoa. And was somehow able to choose which house they went into. And I believe they Impressive. chose Hufflepuff. Oh. Yeah, he chose Hufflepuff. So that's awesome. Um, but... Uh, anyway, we heard from them and, and they just said that, uh, they, they didn't, I asked, I kind of jokingly, I was like, what questions did I have to answer the other way to, to be able to do that, to, to rig Pottermore. And they just said that it was two and a half years ago and they don't really remember. Um, but that it was exciting and that for the longest time they didn't realize you could be a hat stall. And they actually just thought that Pottermore allowed you to choose which house you wanted to be in. Oh, huh. So very interesting. It seems like you, if, if you did that, like you ought to get a big burst up on your screen that says you are a hat stall you know (laughs) yeah well i i feel like that's what does happen i mean maybe it's a more recent thing but 
hat stalls were like a, an extra content from JK Rowling. It like, I don't know if that was during the chapter, maybe they introduced another hat stall and that was the thing. But I remember reading really early on about hat stalls and it was directly from Pottermore. So <laughs> yeah, I would think that something would come up if you would see it, but Hey, whatever. Um, still pretty exciting that <laughs> Pottermore, uh, well, just doesn't know, you know, would you have chosen yeah. Gryffindor if you got a four way, Eric? Uh, possibly. I yeah, think, because yeah. because the thing with Pottermore, yes, because the thing with Pottermore was that I didn't choose it, but I was accepting of it once I read the welcome letter. Like, mm-hmm. so I think I probably would have just gone with Gryffindor because I've been dressing as a Gryffindor for years. Um, but once I read the Hufflepuff welcome letter, I said, you know what? This is me now. Like, mm. this is like, I get this. This this kind of fits. So so I was, I was very happy. <laughs> Cheryl, have you seen any of the um, Pottermore at, at PlayStation Home, the uh, digital environments that you can go roam? Oh no! This sounds it's, really It's really quite cool. <laughs> we'll be the only ones in Hogwarts. There were things that would come up, like in response to questions we would ask. Um, th- that would be tidbits here and there, but more or less, like you know, as an editor, your job is to work with a text that exists, right? And so there wasn't so much time to explore all the fun stuff hmm. that is coming out now. Just so you know, we are pretty sure that Joe listens to the show. So if oh. you have anything you want to say to her. You know, no. I think that's a joke. Isn't that just a joke we keep telling? That's just well, people well, so the that thing they keep is, listening to our show thinking that... No, no, no. No, the thing is we will ask questions on the show and uh-huh. then she answers them on Pottermore. Oh, interesting. I don't know. I mean, what it was very something very specific about owls using the flu network mm-hmm. was some random theory we came up with and she answered it on Pottermore. So, hmm. you know. Oh, that's it's, great. Yeah, yeah, right. She probably, you know, just has someone in her camp listening, but we like to pretend <laughs> that she sits down every Sunday and listens to the show. <laughs> well, she's certainly been very fan responsive about, you know, the, the mere fact that Pottermore exists. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Satisfying. True. Yeah. She's awesome. All right, so now we're up to the podcast question of the week responses. And the first response that we got is from username Holly Wobbles. Cute. <laughs> Excellent cute. name. <laughs> Very cute. And she says, I don't agree that Snape is a horrible teacher. He does start by comparing what Harry is going to need to do to something similar that he has done before, resisting the Imperius curse, so that he will have the idea of what he is supposed to do. Snape doesn't give him step-by-step instructions, but it seems to be that it's more a magic that you feel out rather than having a specific set of rules to follow. He compliments him, as best as Snape is ever able to compliment Harry, on his first attempt. Yes, Snape is a jerk to Harry. As a person, he is not very nice. But as a teacher, I think he's doing as well a job. But as a teacher, I think he's doing as well a job as any other could. His biggest mistake seems to be that he assumes Harry will take responsibility for himself learning occlumency. Harry does zero research on it and doesn't put any effort into practicing. He, as always, relies on Hermione to hand him the information that he should have been searching for himself. Harry's inability to learn is more his own fault than anything. Like every other thing in this world, you can't learn it by just being handed the information. You actually need to try. Maybe Dumbledore thought that Harry would be even more motivated to close his mind because it was Snape trying to get in, even though Voldemort getting in his mind should have been plenty of motivation. So... I I still think that Snape's a really horrible teacher, but I do I do think that he's probably teaching it correctly. I mean, well, we talked yeah. last week. We we did say that uh, Snape just kept saying to Harry, like, close your mind or clear your mind, without like really spending time to say this is how you do that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so there was that little kind of tidbit because it was all in the heat of the moment and the action that was happening. I mean, but that's valid. That's like telling somebody to, you know, shut your mind off before you go to sleep. If you can't sleep, if you have, you know, what's the word, um, where you can't sleep. Insomnia. Yes. Thank you. Mm. That word. If you have that, you know, they're like, just clear your mind. I mean, how do you Mm. explain how to do that? But you yeah. can teach, like, you know, you do deep breathing, you do... That's <laughs> you, right. You, the you, techniques. You, you can, Go to yeah, your cave. And, and, and Snape doesn't... I mean, I think Snape probably could do all of this, but I think, you know, all these people just, like I said earlier, just bring out the worst in each other. And, <laughs> yeah, and so yeah, I, yeah. Think that, I think that he um, is just so devoted to... I mean, he's such a good Occlumens that he's so devoted to keeping himself protected, he can't think about... And Harry brings up such um, negative feelings in him that he can't bring up any of the good stuff that is in him when it comes to teaching. Right. Well, is there good stuff? Yeah. Well, I mean, when we see Snape teach potions, you know, he's a, he's a, he's always harsh, but he's also, you know, he knows what he's doing. He, mm-hmm. and he can teach technique and, um, and style and so on. True. Yeah. When, whenever he criticizes a student on their potions, he tells them exactly where they went wrong. Right. Um, he may say it like a little, you know, jaunting, kind of weird, you know, kind of getting on everyone's nerves with the way he says it. But it's, it's he is helping them, I think, too. But 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 it's because Snape is such a good Occlumens that he's, he, you know, we know he's able to fool Voldemort after years of working really closely with him. Right. Um, that it makes me want for more, like in terms of this le- these lessons with Snape and Harry, because I feel like Snape not only gets it, he, you know, is pretty much he's the he's the one who's putting that into the the, pre, the most practice that you'd ever need he's mastered it he's basically. he's absolutely mastered it and yeah. so you would think that he would be, you know be capable of explaining a little bit clearer to harry how to do these things but mm-hmm. as you're saying i mean it's it's really the personalities that are clashing here for the next comment quibble quaffle says if we're comparing snape to lupin with circle theory both occlumency and the patronus charms take a lot more than just waving your wand but while Lupin guides Harry through it, builds up his confidence, and makes sure he's okay after by giving him chocolate to help with the effects of the fake Dementor, Snape explains Occlumency in a way that Harry can't understand it, attacks him before he's ready, outright calls Harry weak, and afterwards just lets him walk away when Harry felt shivery, his scar was still aching, and he felt almost feverish. He was very white, and his scar seemed to be showing up more clearly than usual. Surely there would have been something that either Snape or Madame Pomfrey could have done to help with that. This goes beyond the typical wizarding disregard for health and safety, because this is a magical threat that Snape is leaving Harry vulnerable to. Maybe he's going for a more tough love, fake moody approach, but even fake moody took Neville aside to comfort him, like Professor Lupin would have done, and encourages his students as well as being hard on them. Hmm. Never mind that Lupin was a better teacher than Snape, Barty Crouch Jr. was a better teacher than Snape. Hmm. We have to remember that Little Crouch was obsessed with Harry, so he was going to do anything to get on his good side. Oh, including comforting Neville. Yes, including comforting Neville. Mm-hmm. Well, still, he I mean, he demonstrated he knew how, knew what to do or knew how to do it. It no, worked that's for Neville. True. He was yeah. a great a great teacher. That is true. Mm-hmm. Well, well, Snape's journey. I mean, knowing that the first lesson didn't go very well in the last chapter, and knowing what eventually happens, which is as soon as Harry really gets insight into Snape, he shuts down lessons and refuses to teach him further. I mean that that alone is just, just says that there's no tolerance here that there's not going to be any kind of it was a bad first lesson and all the other lessons subsequently are going to just be equally bad um it's it's not going to get any better 
unfortunately. I wonder why the side effect is that his scar shows up more clearly than usual. What's up with that? I mean, I was just thinking it was like the whole, well, in the long view, it was his horcrux being activated, the memory being, Hmm. you know, that the scar is like the physical manifestation of that of that connection. Mm-hmm. And so since um, they're going so deep within him, I guess, or trying to, that the, the scar would. And because he was very white, so it yeah. probably stood out more. I yeah. just, I can't, I just yeah. thought of something terrible, which is like scars or like previous cuts can like reopen or bleed or whatever, which I thought would be like totally crazy if Harry ever bleeds from a scar. Thank God that doesn't happen. Oh yeah. B- oh, but, <laughs> but because it's tingling, Maybe like it. Maybe it, there is a physical. Like it's not bleeding, but maybe there's like a physical that it's it's getting more pronounced because and that the tingling is like the tingling is a physical side effect. Like it's not like just mental that it's tingling. Um, so maybe that has something to do with. I mean, he has a physical scar. Like so, maybe it's just getting you know more pro- pro- prominent because it is being affected. You know, kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so the next comment comes from Snuggles with Nifflers, uh, and they say, I wonder if, during these lessons, Snape was searching Harry's mind for similarities to Lily, or even glimpses of her. Most of Harry's memories that Snape sees go against Harry being a James mini-me and paint him in a much more sympathetic light. Snape does get a glimpse of Lily when he sees her through Harry in the Mirror of Erised. I feel as though it would have been difficult for Snape to resist delving deeply into Harry's mind at the temptation of seeing Lily again. No... No, I hate to disagree. I, I do. I do hate to agree with with somebody with such a brilliant username uh, that just that just tickles me to no end. Um, but but no, like it's Lily died when Harry was one. Like I don't think that he's really look going to be able to. It's not fruitful to think that you're going to get any kind of memory of Lily. Like yes, the thing with the mirror verse that happens and did happen to Harry, but. You just don't go diving into some kid's mind with the hopes that you're going to find their mother who you love because he only had one year with her. Like, what's he going to remember? Or what's he going to find? It just doesn't seem like it's the, the, that's valid. Well, it's Snape. And I think if you think about the fact that, you know, he knows at this point that Voldemort is using Harry. What if in some crazy world, Snape... I feel like this is potentially, maybe even only like 2% of the motivation, but it's there. What if he thinks that he could see memories of Lily from Harry through Voldemort? Does that make any sense, what I was saying there? Does that make any so sense? he's trying to, like, Inception, where he's trying to go, like, four <laughs> layers down? Yeah. Like, he, like he could go into Voldemort's mind and see Lily through Harry's eyes? Is that... Yeah, or or or. Because- Although, wouldn't you just basically see Lily getting killed? Yeah, like that's, <laughs> that's probably that's, the that, only. Isn't that like their primary connection? Apart from the other thrice times that they defied him or whatever, right? right. Which was in the prophecy. Right. I feel like he didn't interact with them all that much. I, I feel like even Snape wouldn't be so bold as to like try and pry into Voldemort. Yeah, me either. It's just through Harry or not. Trying to throw something fun out there. Yeah, it was mm. fun. I had, I had fun <laughs> dismissing that immediately. And also seeing Lily through the eyes of somebody that she did love. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. gosh. Now my heart is broken. It's Snape. <laughs> it's fine. All right. So our last comment here comes from Jess Fudd. And they say, I think Dumbledore and Snape are using Harry as bait again. 
Or they were using Harry as a backdoor for Snape to try to get into Voldemort's mind. If Voldemort had broken into Harry's mind during one of these lessons, he would have seen Snape teaching Harry almost nothing, as well as him making Harry's mind into mush to make it much easier for Voldemort to overpower it. I believe that in the greater plot where Dumbledore is forming a plan against Voldemort, Harry is a resource to be utilized at this point, not yet a team member in the fight. If the goal was really to teach Harry to close off his mind, these lessons would have been taught better, even by Snape, and he wouldn't have had the option of quitting. I don't think they meant for Harry to get lured to the Ministry and actually go, but I do think they expected Voldemort to make a move like that in that way, and plan to head it off. I'm pretty sure they underestimated how stupidly brave Harry can be. Hmm. This is a heck of an accusation. It's interesting. It's an interesting thought. Well, they're playing with fire, then. Yeah. No, I think I think that that I think it's a well, it's one step too far for me, but that's just me personally. Like it's like I think that it's Harry being a danger to himself and others, and I mean just the fact that he's inside Hogwarts and Hogwarts is a place where you're supposed to be safe means that they wouldn't want Voldemort peeping around. Um, you know, if 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 something like full on possession could happen as a result of the connection that Harry has, the very last thing that you want is Voldemort at the heart of where all the students are. And so I I think it's in everyone's best interest that Harry be protected against Voldemort, no matter what. That's just, that's just good business. That's just good idea. (laughs) I mean, I think Harry as a resource to be utilized is pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Like, I mean, I think, I think that's, I think that's Dumbledore's, I mean, I, I I think that, I think you're right that like they, they should be careful with Harry and um, Hogwarts and everything, but uh, I, I mean, in the, the forest again chapter in book seven, Harry says, you know, like he'd been a tool all along and he's kind of okay with that. Do you know? (laughs) Or or at least he goes to his death. He recognizes that. But um, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> what? Yeah, I know. <laughs> For anybody we, uh, who's listening to this and, and hasn't got there yet, um, there was but, a there uh, was a five minute period where we didn't say the Half Blood Prince's identity in the last chapter. Really? Oh, really? Like, yeah, we did. We're Wait, like, people in the oh world? Oh my god, people exist. <laughs> I, I don't think you should be able to get a job as a children's librarian these days. read Harry Potter. It still baffles me that there are people in the world who haven't read Harry Potter. Well, Ma, I'll mm-hmm. say I got into editing in part because my grandfather was a professor of children's literature. Cool. And even after I started working on the books, he refused to read them. Uh, why? <laughs> he uh, he wasn't big into fantasy and he tried the first one and he didn't like it. And that was that. Oh, so, man. I mean, I re- and I respect there are people who are like that or people for whom it just doesn't chime. But I also think if you're a children's librarian i mean come on yeah (laughs) all right to complete this uh, section here we're going to give a little shout out to uh the people that did a good job on the forums and on the main site just uh discussions something that we didn't have time to mention in this episode um well boy this is gonna be fun all right we got uh albert cashier beach badger 27 blame it on the nargles centaur seeker 121 chocolate frog ravenclaw elvis gaunt Feather Sickle 7662, Hagrid's Drinking Problem, <laughs> Hufflepug, Looney Lauren, Molly Wobbles, Puffin Proud, Rose Lumos, Silver Doe 25, Slytherin Knight, and Wizard or What. Thank you, everybody, for your contributions. And I guess with that, we'll jump into uh, the chapter discussion for this week. Woohoo! Chapter 25. 
No, I, I can't. I, I just can't do it. Oh, come on, Joe. Don't be such a human hose pipe. <laughs> the beetle at bay. Cho, come back. <sighs> okay, so here we are, chapter 25, The Beetle at Bay. Um, I'm just going to do our little chapter summary thing before we break it down, per usual. Okay, so, oh no! In this chapter, ten high-security prisoners, read Death Eaters, have escaped from Azkaban prison. Bode is eliminated from the equation via a potted plant, not hyphenated, and a very clever murderer. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, should it be hyphenated? I think that should be I, hyphenated. I, I don't think it should. Like, <laughs> there you go. I, I'm going to, I mean, and this might be a British versus a American thing, too, because we have different styles of hyphenation well, on different go. sides of the pond. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I'm sorry. It's okay. Please go on. <laughs> um, Hermione keeps Ron and Harry in the dark, and Hagrid gets put on probation. Harry is once again the topic of discussion at Hogwarts, but this time it's different. Thank goodness for the DA, or Harry would have nothing to live for. Oh, he's so dramatic, that boy. Valentine's Day finally arrives, much to Harry's um, excitement, and his Hogsmeade date with Cho. No dementors around to, ch- to capture the escaped convicts, yet golden cherubs are plentiful in Madame Puttyfoots. Puttyfoots? Is that? Putty, Put- Puttyfoots? Puttyfoots? <laughs> Putty? <laughs> I guess it's not wrong. I mean, putty, putty. How do you say it? Puttafoot. 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 Okay, I'm going to redo that then. <clears throat> Yet golden cherubs are plentiful at Madame Puttafoot's. Was that better? I a little guess. bit. Okay, fine. Hands are harder to catch than a snitch, and after Cho cries into her coffee cup, Harry meets Hermione and Rita Skeeter to write the article that would change everything. Everything. <laughs> it everything. changes everything. Everything. Okay, so the first point that I want to talk about here is obviously the first big thing we get in this chapter is the mass breakout from Azkaban. Like, holy crap, oh my god, ten prisoners, ten high-security prisoners are out. Yeah, and that's un- that's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> the quibbler's where it's at. It's, as soon as Hermione digs in, she realizes, or Harry realizes that nobody else is talking about it. maybe except for the teachers but like mm-hmm. plenty of students just ignore the paper at this point and yeah. i feel like that should i feel like that's something you should never do i feel like <laughs> maybe they need classes or lessons about why it's important to actually keep up with news whoa but. whoa are you saying that you read the newspaper when you were 15 16 12 in, in study hall but i i did only oh. read the comics so i don't know okay that, that doesn't count <laughs> Well, I was going to say that I was really struck by rereading the article. I was struck by the position that it places the reader versus um, fudge in the media. I mean, clearly we are against fudge in the media uh, um, altogether, uh, but that we know what's being reported about Sirius is untrue. So that ends up making us sympathize with the cr- criminals, you know, in, huh. in a very sort of like Harry Potter alliance way. Like, <laughs> we're like, like you know, we are the people who... Um, this is the sort of thing in the Harry Potter books that encourages people to question the dominant power, mm. you know, because it's teaching you, like, how media can lie and how yeah. government people can lie. And so you can't trust it. And so when people talk about the rebellious spirit of the Harry Potter books sometimes, I feel like this article, which it says Harry is a criminal, but we know Harry is a good guy, is the sort of thing that really, like, passes that lesson on implicitly to readers without ever getting really didactic about it. And that's such mm-hmm. a that's such a strong undertone of this book as well. Yeah, all the absolutely. political politicalness. Because we know Joe loves that. Did you read Casual Vacancy? I did. I loved it. 
Yeah, me too. It was great. Yeah. There are about like 10 of us in the world, I think. <laughs> that, That's three. That's three, yeah. right? Exactly. That's three. Yeah. So in this article, we get a couple names, actually really only two, because we had Bellatrix's name before this, right? Well, this is, it's yeah. important. It's probably more important that she broke out than it's important that right. some of the others broke out. Right. So just a slight background, because we don't really know too much on the two that are mentioned. So Antonin Dolohov. So um, it, uh, according to the wiki, it says he attended Hogwarts with Tom Riddle and was possibly part of his gang, potentially even the first of his quote unquote friends. Mm. Um, he was part of the group of five Death Eaters that brutally murdered Molly's twin brothers. Yes, which, thank you for bringing this up. Gideon and Fabian Pruitt mm-hmm. um, are Molly's twin brothers. So mm-hmm. that uh, that wasn't pointed out in this chapter. It just says that he was responsible for killing them. Um, but it is Ron's uncles. Right. Yeah. They were mentioned in passing previous to this, right? Yeah. Um, so... Antonin can't speak. Antonin took part in the battle of the Department of Mysteries, and uh, he was the one who got the Silencio charm shot at him by Hermione, and then did that spell that we don't know what it is. The spell, Cheryl, you don't know what that spell is, do you? I would have to reread that chapter to, oh. to know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. Anyway, I thought maybe it could be like some cool thing that was cut and we didn't know about. Oh. Um, she wouldn't be able to tell us anyway, so it's okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, weird. He was later defeated in the Battle of Hogwarts by Flitwick. So you know, isn't it? I'm sure it's a movieism, but isn't Dalhov, uh the name of the Death Eater that gets petrified in the cafe in Part One, where Ron's yes. like, I recognize him. He's Dolohov. Yes. Well, because if that is canon, then Ron was just staring down the wizard who killed his uncles. Like and didn't realize it. Right, that's a that's true. So that's kind of interesting. That's a book mm. thing too, because it was on the wiki. So mm. okay, it the wiki doesn't say that he was confirmed as killed. It just says that he gets um, defeated by mm. the next name we get here is Augustus Rookwood. Of course, we all have heard about him a few times here. He was a department of, department of mysteries um, worker until he turned spy in the first Wizarding World War. Um, he was part of that whole Ludo Bagman scandal where they thought that Ludo might have been a Death Eater. You know, he was involved in all that. And Karkaroff is the reason that he was originally put into Azkaban. Oh, that's right. That was uh, Karkaroff's one, like that last name that he The one should... name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, again, according to the wiki, it says that he was instrumental in getting Lord Voldemort on track to steal the prophecy since he worked... In the Department of Mysteries, you know, he knew about the prophecies and what would happen if someone not named would try to steal it, blah, 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 all of that. Um, He was at the scene when Fred died, sad face, and (laughs) Percy chased him down. Ooh. Yeah, and it was um, his, I guess, it's unknown whether he's alive at this point. And just a little entomology here. That was the right word, right? Okay. Um, Rookwood was named as Algernon Rookwood in the first UK editions of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, but his name reverted to Augustus again later on. Is that true? Do you know? I have only ever seen it as Augustus that I recall, but... Oh, all right. Well, maybe the wiki is wrong. Anyway, and um, it says that rooks are known to be extremely sociable birds and also have a kind of caw 
that sounds like a croak. And Rookwood is indicated to be a sociable wizard, and when he was seen speaking to Voldemort, he was hoarse and his tone was described as a croak. So, there you go. Um, and I guess concerning this mass breakout, just jumping a little bit ahead to when Harry and Cho are later in Hogsmeade, um, Cho comments how funny it is that, you know, when Sirius Black escaped, there was Dementors everywhere and now there's none. And Harry's like, oh yeah. He notices the absence and notes the significance. And I'm wondering that, is nobody else questioning this or mentioning, you know, because nobody seems really concerned about the fact that nobody's really looking for these guys. Well, just because the Dementors aren't at Hogwarts doesn't mean hypothetically that they're not elsewhere looking for, you know, the the Death Eaters. Nobody said, unlike the story with Sirius Black where, you know, the was it Fudge or somebody where, whoever heard him saying, he's at Hogwarts, he's at Hogwarts, and they had reason to suspect, and Dumbledore had to hmm. begrudgingly allow the Dementors to be in that area, Hogsmeade, Hogwarts area. Hmm. You know, unlike unlike that, now it's just like they could be anywhere in the greater world. I don't know. So, so clearly they're trying to cover up that the Dementors are no longer under ministry control, as they've said for for months and months. Dumbledore warned against this. But my question is, um, really, does why did only 10 high-profile people escape if the Dementors are not on the ministry side anymore? Right. Mm. Why, didn't, why didn't everybody break out if the Dementors are no uh-huh. longer there? That's a good question. So that was kind of my question from just reading this chapter and seeing, like, Joe is is brilliant, and I want to bring that up later. But um, what I, her I think brilliant? He, yeah, just oh, okay. with uh, with the Dementors, though. There's really this question about where where their position is now, because the only reason they could have broken out is either the Dementors are still at Azkaban for the Ministry and just happen to look the other way, you know, and now the Ministry's like figuring out how to penalize them or whatever if they can, as if they could, you know, or mm-hmm. the Dementors all just left with Voldemort. Like, well, that was another it, question I had. Is it ever explained exactly how they broke out? I mean, I assume I they so. just opened the door. Although, if you yeah. if you go if you go in the movie, it's like there's a hole in the building. But that's I mean that's just that just looks cooler than than opening the door. <laughs> I just <laughs> right. figure if if Voldemort really has the Dementors on his side or is able to persuade them, then it would really be a matter of just letting him in and letting them out. Like, it just, there wouldn't be anything to it. There wouldn't need to be, you wouldn't even need to blow a hole in the side of the building. I mean, we don't really know what the nature of the Dementor's employment contract with the ministry is, necessarily. <laughs> right. You know, like, like do, do they feed him, a, do they feed them souls every so often, you know, like, you've served us for a year, have a soul or something? Yeah. Um, but, but, I mean, I can sort of picture the Dementors playing both sides here, you know, that whatever whatever way they are paid or whatever they do get out of being a Naz- um being an Azkaban, they want to maintain that, but then they'd certainly want whatever Voldemort could offer them, because he certainly wouldn't hesitate to offer more souls. So I wonder how word got out that uh, that this happened. You know, because if the Dementors mm. are still under the function of the Ministry, they probably would have covered it up. In fact, it's it's probably in everyone's best interest, like for Voldemort, that nobody knows that they break out or broke out. So are there like some loyal Dementors in, and who like reported Jim. it? <laughs> It's Jim. Jim, the Dementor. Uh-huh. Oh, that's a running that, gag on the show. That Jim this happens. Yeah. And then all the other Dementors, like, otherwise would have kept it secret. Because that's the thing, is you don't show your, your cards, right? You don't show your mm. hand. There's, like, a warden somewhere. 
Mm-hmm. Or head of Department of Magical Corrections or something. Yeah. That we don't see. I mean, if those if those people in Azkaban are even all Voldemort people, you know, you could just have your standard like higher level Mundungus Fletchers or something. Yeah, that's that's true, and and we know that even uh, was it Haggard even gets sent to Azkaban for right. <laughs> for yeah. Stuff. I was gonna say we don't know how many people are actually in Azkaban. So as far as we know, maybe the Dementors only guard the really high security people, hmm. Hmm. and the rest hmm. of it is just like. You know, not guarded. We'll have to wait for Pottermore. We say that about a lot of things. <laughs> hint, 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 hint. Yes, right? Joe, do nudge, you hear that? Nudge, wink, nudge. Wink, right? <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, okay. So speaking of Death Eaters and the Bellatrix Lestrange, we are going to um, move on and talk about Neville and Dumbledore's army, which I really love. Obviously, I love Dumbledore's army. Big fan. But um, I just I, I particularly really like the mentions, even though it's really short in this chapter, about how upon the news of the mass breakout reaching the students' ears, Neville very quickly becomes very focused and very determined, and it it just makes my heart grow three sizes. I you know I really love Neville, one of my favorite characters, and. Yeah, and I mean, it makes me want him to be like this all the time, and I, I, I don't know, because clearly he has it in him, so why why is he not just like this all the time? Well, I, I think the interesting thing that I that I took out of this was that the article that, that um, announces the breakout, the mass breakout of Azkaban, actually states what Bellatrix was in Azkaban for. It actually says, oh. Bellatrix is strange, convicted of the torture and permanent incapacitation of Frank and Alice Longbottom. So... Harry, Ron, and Hermione just found out by accident, was it two chapters ago, Christmas on the Closed Ward, that, mm-hmm. like, what happened to Neville's family? But now it's in the public. Like, it's in the – and we don't see any real, like, ramifications or repercussions of this, like, from a Neville perspective, like, whether or not any of the students really – well, we know that they don't read the chapter – or, sorry, the, the – um, <laughs> we know they don't read the newspaper. We know they don't read the newspaper. But if they did, the answer's right there that that – happens and i think frank and alice longbottom should probably be pretty well known um as a result of their you know did they just got some fame before they um were injured so severely so i feel like uh that should raise some i mean now everybody knows and i think neville personally like for his character talking about him um being inspired to do better is i think now he's not he's no longer hiding from the past i think he's really mm-hmm. able to embrace it that secret is out now but do you think it is though because i i i always was under the assumption like it's in print like right that's... i know but you know we said before that nobody reads the newspaper they get secondhand news do you think that that's a bit of news that would get telephoned on i'm just saying it could i mean there's a possibility that there's one other student in hogwarts who reads the paper and could go up to neville and say i had no idea i'm sorry you know, mm. but but I think it's just the fact that it is out there. It is it is public. Plenty of people not at Hogwarts. Hogwarts is not the the Daily Prophet's only like potential reading you know readership. <laughs> they like, would be out of business if it the was the whole world. <laughs> yeah, right. they would. When they the whole the whole world presumably reads the the Prophet. So I think for Neville, like again going back to like how he feels about this, the fact that he that that is made public. I'm sure people knew before, but the fact that it's made public again and that Bellatrix 
is out and free, that more than anything is really just going to inspire Neville to uh, get better at defensive spells because he may have a sort of bloodlust or a sort of, you know, avenging kind of thought here about one day finding her. When she's in Azkaban, you know, justice is in theory being served. You know, right. mm-hmm. like there, and there's not anything you can do with it. She, he's, she's just there, and and yeah, he he can't he can't go in there because she's being punished in theory. But now he can really, if he ever meets her, he can lay the law down. He can get get back at her. Yes, vigilante yes. justice. So so I, so that seems like plenty of motivation to like kick it up yeah. from you know just being normal Neville to being awesome Neville. Right. Neville with pecs. <laughs> <laughs> I always think about the movie posters, like with this movie, and how all the kids like had been just kids, and then suddenly they were very much young men and yeah. young women. So, mm-hmm. yeah. As I was rereading this chapter for the first time in a long time, I will admit, um, I was really struck by how much of this time is spent in narration. Hmm. I do some teaching of writing on the side, and we talk a lot about um, the difference between dramatization, which is where like the scene with where all the kids are sitting around talking about um, what's in the paper versus narration, which, which covers like a long period of time. And, um, and it's much more general. It doesn't focus so much on specific incidents or days. And I was really struck by how much of this chapter, including this whole Neville bit is just narrated and how smoothly she leads us through a pretty long period of time here. I think, you know, like most of, most of January and February Mm -hmm. and how much she covers because you, you go from like, um, Umbridge and the teacher through, um, and how she's sort of stalking Trelawney and Hagrid through the DA, through Occlumency. Um, and then you get another little scene with Ron and Hermione. And then you get uh, like, uh, ongoing with, uh, all these letters that everybody's getting. Um, and all the way up to Valentine's Day, like it, it's doing going back and forth between narration and um, dramatization is a hard thing to do, and handling narration well is a hard thing to do. And this is just like masterful stuff here, and the way it just oh, sort yeah. of like leads you from topic to topic in a completely smooth way, and and that you're always anchored in Harry all of the time. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I mean, she easily yeah. forty five days or so pass. Yeah. You know, and it's and and this book is still the longest book uh, yes. of them all. But she manages to pick out what's important, and you and it's not jarring. Like you totally feel like you understand. You know, she just she's just like, yeah, lessons with Snape don't go any better, and you know everything you said about um, probation and this that the other thing. So she manages to traverse great distance, great periods of of time without it um, slowing us down or. Uh, getting in the way, but also like being all that obvious that that has just happened. All of a sudden, it's mm-hmm. it's it's Valentine's Day, and it's time for Harry's date. Yeah, she's so masterful yes. at that. She does that frequently throughout the and series. She checks in on all her subplots as she's going along. I mean, I'm yeah. sure you all have seen the uh, that plot chart that was yes. And I mean, when I, when I was reading this chapter, and I was thinking about that chart and how like, oh yes, here she has mentioned the Order of the Phoenix. Here she has mentioned the DA. You know, wait, like I could just see her chopped. Um, Checking off boxes in that chart. Yeah. Wait, there's a, there's a plot chart? What's this? Have you not seen this? It's a, well, it's a chart for book five where like you have the chapter number down the side, then what the title of the chapter, mm-hmm. what month it takes place, and then she has a little like plot summary written in of what mm-hmm. the main action of the chapter is, and then she has all of her subplots listed on the side. So it's Order of the Phoenix, Dumbledore's Army, Cho, um, Snape, I think, Sirius, 
And um, and she's gone through and written in what happens with each of these, which with each of these subplots in each of these chapters. I yep. have okay. I just googled it and I had seen it before. I guess yeah. I just didn't. Wow. I use this chart when I'm teaching plotting as just and everybody just sort of like jaws drop when they. I see know, it. right? It's like it's we like, can't be like J.K. Exactly. Well, surely that's surely she's not human, right? They're going to discover <laughs> in like 50 years that she's like an android or something, right? Sip from the future. She's yeah, the Terminator <laughs> of authors. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, Puttafoots? Yes. It's still, yes. yes. Go, yes. Sorry. We're going to talk about Madame Puttafoots and those amazing, awkward teenage years. Okay. So this scene, I laugh every time. Harry is the epitome of awkward, strange boy, teenager. I love it. Were you Emotional two- range of a teaspoon. Yes. Were you yes. two like this at this age? Eric and Michael, yes. Uh, Well, not Cheryl. I was talking about boys. I have a whole range of a tablespoon. Oh, perfect. (laughs) I think that, I mean, Harry's, I don't know, Harry's kind of like Ron in this chapter, like more than he is like him. I don't know. He just doesn't get it. I feel like, yeah, I feel like, you know what? No, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I was a good listener and because a lot of my correspondence with girls actually happened over the internet, so <laughs> it was less awkward, you know, like Fair from enough. being in front of somebody. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of like, so that really removed a lot of the the awkwardness that surely would have happened. So I'm saying I probably was like that, but fortunately for me, the circumstances made it so it was never like all that awkward or it was like as awkward as it is just into message somebody. You got to learn at an arm's length. Yes, exactly. Right. So that that's, was kind of like my situation. I'd be curious to know, like, when I when I first read this, I was, I guess, 24, 25. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought it was hilarious, too, because, yeah, it is such a teenage experience. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I remember hearing from actual teenage readers that they didn't find it funny at all. Because <laughs> <laughs> <No. laughs> like, no, it was this just, just happened to me They yesterday. had no distance from it. It just yeah. seemed really awkward and terrible to them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I'd be curious to know, like, both from you all, like, depending on how old you were when you first read this and... um and from your any of your readers who might want to post, like what their initial experience of this yeah. scene was. Well, I, I was fifteen and Harry's fifteen, so yeah. that that worked. I mean, I think, and did you think it was funny or did you think it? No, was... No, I thought it was terrifying. No, <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> it, 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 it sucked hardcore. Yeah, it was bad because, like, well, when I was reading it the first time, Cho did seem like just prone to fits of of tears that weren't <laughs> that weren't necessarily justified, and I think right. that's how I remembered her, but. One of the joys of reading this chapter for me was, you know, I am such a a, a Harry Ginny shipper. I I I cried tears of joy as soon as that happened in <laughs> in in Half-Blood Prince, and I have supported it ever since. I think they're amazing and perfect for each other. But as a result or as a consequence, I don't like Cho very much, and I'm just like, yeah, she just cried a lot. What, what was the point? But reading this chapter when they're walking down to Hogsmeade, and even at uh, Puttifoots, you know, she, I guess they're outside and she points out about the Dementors aren't there. Like, she is smart and she has things to say that are uh, not too far from, Her- I mean, they're on Harry's level. They really re- reel him into discussion, rope him into to discussion that, that matters. And I feel like I have been giving Cho, Cho the wrong kind of, you know, shakedown here because because she's actually, apart from the fact that this ends in tears and she runs away, you know, crying into the rain, which is really dramatic. Um, <laughs> I, I just feel like uh, she kind of for a minute there was actually on Harry's level and, and, and it's a shame that he ruins it, but I, I don't think there's anything you could have done differently. 
I think it, I think it's awkward. I think it's supposed to be awkward. Oh yeah. What what um remind me the year this came out? Oh five. Two thousand three. Three. Okay. So I was twenty one. So I had I had a little bit of space from that. So I I had mm-hmm. only had one boyfriend. So. And you found it funny too. I did. I, I mean, uh, maybe this is a male-female thing, too. What's like, I funny? Wonder what's funny find about it, funnier. Cheryl? Tell me what's funny. What's funny about this? What's funny about this scene? Everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, come on. Now, even Michael, um, who's been quiet, is like, it's pretty funny. I mean, just his utter... his. I guess what's funny about it is just how utterly ignorant he is of, mm-hmm. like, um, how to behave and how to act. I mean, I sympathize with that. I, I do remember that from, like, my own experience of, like, like the first time you're slow dancing with a guy and are you supposed to put your hands on his shoulders? And if you right. do, do you link them behind his neck? You know, like all of that is very recognizable. And and so even as I'm laughing, I, I find it very endearing and and sweet. Yeah. Um, but then like Harry totally not getting why um, he shouldn't be talking about Hermione all the time. Well, that you know? was an accident. Uh, that was an accident. She just, once he did it, he couldn't take it back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then, I mean, I think they, there's... You know, we you might say that like, uh, like I think I think that Hermione or not Hermione Cho would like likes Harry. You know, would be glad to get together with Harry, but she they're just like in different emotional places altogether, yeah. mm. and that and that is just making them unable to truly connect beyond like a general like you're kind of cute, you're kind of cute too. We like each other. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's get coffee. You know. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cho thinks Cho so. thinks that Harry's got all these girls or whatever. And it's not, it's not like not just Hermione. He's like, or she, she's like, uh, you know, who are you? How many seeing after her? You just go through them. This, that, the other. Like she makes these crazy accusations and runs out. But like, as soon, he he is so uh, indignant over the idea that he could possibly like Hermione in that extra way that he mm. gets defensive. But I mean, it's just the there is a bit of there's this overly dramatic when when he senses that what he should be doing is holding her hand. But he reaches for it and then she pulls it away. Like, <laughs> and she doesn't. She doesn't pull it away consciously. It just happens to like she decides to. It, she gets distracted and like her hand goes off the table. So it's like as he's like diving for it to make everything right, <laughs> denied. He can't. Right. You know, she's distracted. So it is kind of. It's unattainable. You know, it's just like he cannot win in this situation, and that makes me uncomfortable as a guy. That makes me really uncomfortable. But like, you have to ask yourself what actually is Cho trying to accomplish by like taking hair into this little tea room because I mean uh, well it's cold the rain is cold right I mean I assume right. the function is just to warm up although the fact that there are only couples the fact yeah. that there are only they couples could go in there to the, three brooms, the three broomsticks or something right. is suspect right. well yeah. this is more romantic than the three or this is just quieter than the three broomsticks the three broomsticks has Hagger getting wasted um, on a good day <laughs> for the huge yeah. so yeah but do you but do you think she took him there, like looking for a makeout session? Well, why did she bring up Cedric? That's what I want to know. Because, like, well, yeah, all other like uh, points aside of like what happens, etc. Her bringing up Cedric does feel uh, to me a little out of place because if she is there with the intention of getting with Harry or you know being closer to him, that the, the what she needs and what I why I think she's there, why I think she's there is that she wants to finally get his account of what happened with Cedric. Yeah, I mean... I, I, hmm. Because she, uh, says, she says that. See, I, like she I, I mean, I think that she, she she only brings that up after after she's also brought up Roger Davies and after Harry has said that he's going to be meeting Hermione. Right. So I think she brings him there like 
sort of thinking like maybe I'll get together with him and we'll have a cute Valentine's Day and I'd you know she seems like the sort of person who likes cute fun things and right. being romantic and all that you know all that sort of really girly stuff I guess that's sort of my image of Cho and um and then it it goes really badly and so then she starts to punish him and try to get other things from him you know because she's not he's not giving her the easy sweet cute romantic like dreamy stuff that she wanted so but that's when I, that's when she's, I think she sort of turns on him. And, well, and, yeah, this is a, I mean, yeah. this is a trap. This is like, yeah. I've been, yeah. I, I, I've been, she, she says, I've been <laughs> meaning to ask you for ages. Did Cedric, did he m- 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 mention me at all before he died? <laughs> that, that's a trap. That's a, that's a yeah. freaking, that's a, excuse my um, untowardness to the female race, but that's a girl trap. That's, that's how they get you. So. Like, does my dress look fat? Did my dead boyfriend mention me before he died? <laughs> and you, the answer to both of those questions, well, no, one of them is no, and the other is yes. Wait, so that's what? A, that's a That's a trap. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, like, in, in contrast to the Harry-Cho relationship, I love all the moments with Harry and Ginny in this book. Like, mm-hmm. like I mean, I feel like this is almost the more romantic book between the two of them than Half-Blood Prince. Like, I mean, that's certainly the one where he starts thinking of her and, you know, having dreams and so on and so forth. But this is the one where, like, he's talking about how tough it is. And she's like, well, yeah, I've been possessed by Voldemort, too, you know. And yeah. um, and she's really helpful to him a well, number of times in a way that, like, you build a long-term relationship that in a yes. way that Cho just doesn't. And so um, I, th- those are they're, – they're such great subtle foils mm-hmm. in this book. Yeah. Cho just unfortunately picks all the wrong topics at all the right moments. Yeah. Like Harry doesn't want to talk about Cedric because he feels, um, I don't want to say jealous. He feels like that she, well, the more she talks about Cedric or wants to know about Cedric, the less he feels like his own person, like his own candidate for her, for her affection. Mm. That's a Mm -hmm. good point. Like that, that's what I, that's how I feel. So when he reacts, you know, negatively or poorly to the answer, it's 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 kind of as much about asserting his own personhood as it is about um, anything else. It always made me question if she had any actual genuine interest in Harry or if she was just there, you know, for closure and discussion yeah. of Cedric. I think she liked him. I think she thought he was cute, you know. Like, she they, remembers they, their first smart, time together. Fun. Yeah, they, she remembers their first time pretty vividly, actually. Yeah, but uh, on the other hand, I'd say like the one memory he does protect from Snape is kissing Cho. You know ah. that that's something that's precious to him, and he's like, "You don't get that." You I don't forgot get about that. that. Small yeah, victories. I've, so, hmm. so it's something that I think is he has some investment in. Just um, it doesn't play out in any happy way here it's shakespearean it's flawed it's yes it's imperfect one thing i wanted to say um before we move on to another topic is uh you mentioned at the very beginning the little chapter opening illustrations of um mm-hmm. here of harry and show it's really interesting if you look at the chapter illustrations from like book one going all the way through book seven to watch the development of mary grand Prix's art because mm-hmm. they start off being mm-hmm. very um iconic like they they tend to be just like focused on one thing or one object or something, mm-hmm. and as they go along, um, she was doing a lot more picture book work, like after the Harry Potter books, and I, and you can see them get more detailed. I think 
Like, I mean, this isn't a universal rule, but you can see them like a lot of them like this one, like really acquire the a whole aspect of scenes rather than being just like a cherub or something like that. So it's a fun, interesting way to see like um, both. I think you see, I think you can see both Joe sort of developing as a writer through every book and um, and Mary like changing her art as she goes along. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. I mean, this is really I'm looking at it again. This is the perfect chapter art. I mean, yeah, and it is detailed. Mm-hmm. It's not just Harry and Cho. It's Harry and Cho sitting at a table with the tea on it with him reaching to touch her hand and her hand on the edge of the table, dangerously <laughs> close to the edge of the table and a cherub sprinkling confetti <laughs> on them, you know. And I'm sure there's some in the coffee cup if yeah, we can right. see it. Exactly. One of one of my jobs on the series was checking all this chapter art against the actual text. So, so I'm very invested in all these little pictures. Were, were there any you thought were too vague? Um, well, if there were, we we corrected them. Yeah, okay. you know, <laughs> if if there was something that like the uh, the the cherub was you know supposed to have a wreath on his head and he didn't or something. Oh, right, right, that. right. So, right. yeah, yeah. Okay. Do you remember any that were just blatantly like wrong? Oh goodness! This is wrong, eleven years ago you know. now. You know. Yeah. And, oh yeah, it'd yeah. be funny if like the chapter uh, yeah. called "The Half Blood Prince" was just Snape's face. I'm sure it's something. <laughs> I'm sure it's something different, but it's, yeah. But um, I want to talk a little bit about, I guess, the end of the chapter and Hermione's plan. This is awesome. Okay? It's so awesome. Of course, it's brilliant. Hermione, the hero, our hero. She's amazing. We love her. Let's all bow to Hermione. But of course, you know, the beginning of the chapter, she's like, "Oh, wait, I need to go." write a write a letter i don't know it's worth it and then she just leaves leaving ron and harry in the dust kind of per the usual um and we come to find out in this at the end of the chapter that it was indeed most likely rita skeeter that she wrote to and xenophilius lovegood not most likely definitely um so i was wondering what do you guys think she told rita to get her to show up at the three broomsticks because Rita and Hermione, they are not. Well, how, lo- how long? They are not best how friends. long was she in a jar, like in Hermione's like <laughs> trunk? Valid because, question. I mean, I just I figured know. she could just open the jar and let Rita out. I mean, I just like something happened, and I I'm, I may be missing the specifics here, but I mean, th- when Rita when we see Rita, she's been let go of the prophet, or she left. Right. I think I think at the end of Goblet, it says that. Hermione, because Ron is like, oh my god, that's her? Yeah, I'm pretty sure she just... Hermione's like, and Hermione... She just rolls the jar and grins, really, like, rolls it around, and the bug is... But I think she says that I'm, um, I've told her I'll let her out when we get back to London. There's the quote. Okay, okay, thank you. But that's, but no, that, that you can't use that as, like, that's, like, the trump card that she's always using, because, like, I feel like after this, she can't use that anymore, or... I have lots of points about that, actually. Like, one, like, what would have actually happened to Reader Skeeter if Hermione had reported her? But also, you know, on your point is that, you know, Hermione clearly does not keep calling it in. This is her one favor because, as we know, Reader Skeeter just wrote a whole bunch of crap about Hermione from the Quidditch World well, Cup. Well, so that's, but that's your answer then. I, f- I feel like she just said to Rita, here's your chance to make good. Like, like, okay come come here to this place at this time and we're going to settle our differences or you know however she would word it that would get I mean she, I think she would have had to I mention I think Rita Harry. wants this over as much as well I mean not that Hermione wants it over but this is a perfect perfect use of Rita See I think of Rita as just being probably like a freelance journalist like especially in the UK they have a lot of people you know like you know Christopher Hitchens or someone who will write for whatever 
publication gives them an outlet, more or less. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. and that Rita is just like the consummate news hound. You know, if there's gossip, if there's a story to sniff out, or there's something she can say, she's going to chase it down. And um, I, th- I think that Hermione probably, probably maybe invoked the um, Animagus thing, but probably just could have said, you know, I've got a hot story involving Harry Potter, the boy who lived, come to the three broomsticks or something. And I mean, even given Rita's cynicism about Harry and everything, which I really love in this chapter, actually, um, I, I bet she wouldn't, she just wouldn't have been able to resist that. You know, I feel like it would have been a struggle though, right? Like, does she want to involve herself with the girl who trapped her in a jar? Like, to, even for Harry, like, even for, is that mm. how desperate she is? Like, I feel like she would have had well, to. Yeah, she's no, no, down no, where on her she would have, she yeah. would have had a moment where she didn't want to go, but then she would have had to admit to herself that she was so low that she absolutely needed to go for that. But yeah. my whole thing about what's happening with Rita in this chapter is Hermione is actually, I don't want to say doing her a favor, but they're giving her some, some, like dignity some like they're they're allowing her to write the story that that's going to be read and is going to set the record straight it's completely against rita's will but they're using her for such a for proper like for a good purpose that matters and they're allowing rita to to write this like i don't know i don't know what i'm trying to say exactly but the fact that rita is reluctant when they're using her for the right function, I think, in, in this case. It's not vindictive for Hermione on Hermione's part. It's just, you need to write this. And she still has a bit inside her that is a writer that does care about reporting facts. You know, it's been hidden by years of abuse or whatever that, that she's just gotten in the kick of being more of a gossip columnist. But there is a part inside Rita that that it that becomes clear in this chapter that where she... In, in the end, agrees to write this because she not because she doesn't have another choice. I really feel like it's because as a writer, you do have this innate interest in in presenting something that is important. I feel like in this chapter, there's plenty of quotes of just her getting real with people, which makes yeah. me which makes me feel like she's very vulnerable. Like her guard is down. Like I mean, I have several examples, I and mean, we can talk about it, you know, a little bit longer. But I, I just think that. Uh, that Rita really this is the 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 most real we see her she's not hidden by cuz she doesn't have a job like a lofty job to to hide behind and she's not this super popular like she's unemployed um at the moment for all intents and purposes and so for her to be called in to do a job but Hermione controls it it's not going to be where she it's not going to be published where she wants it to be published and in fact she'll get laughed at or the article will get laughed at or whatever um, you know, she, I, I still think that Rita is the best she's ever been in this chapter because all of that other crap is stripped away. And at the heart mm-hmm. of it, you get a, a woman who wants to write something that people read. And so when she says to Luna, uh, I could manure my garden with the crap that's printed in your father's rag. Uh, if I can actually find that, uh, quote. So here. you see that as an example of like Rita's actual pure journalistic heart. Yeah, her I do. I pure do. I love for something. Absolutely do. I, so she says, huh. like, I could manure my garden with the contents of that rag. She is being insulting to Luna. She's being insulting to everybody at the table. But I think part of her wants to wants to write for something that's going to be published. Like she, she cares the fact that her article is not going to be seen. Hmm. And she's like, she's so that's she gets real with Hermione, and she's like, okay, look, Fudge is leaning on the profit, et cetera, et cetera. 
and she reveals it's just a truth bomb after another where she's like, hey, the, the profit exists to sell money or the profit exists to sell the profit. So she's just like laying all these truth bombs down. She wants to write the article, I think, that's going to get read, but she cares that people are going to, that the, these, these, the place where they want to publish it is, well, the Daily Prophet won't publish it. And then the place where they suggest to publish it, she thinks is just not credible. And I, so, I, yeah, I think a part of her really want, like really secretly is on board with this because that is her life's calling to be a journalist. But that could be radical. I don't. Uh, I, I would yeah. go with that. That like, um, I, I, I think that's a much warmer interpretation of Rita that I've ever put on put on her. <laughs> that she's that she's got this love of journalism and and such, and she wants the story to be seen because she's always sort of seemed to me like somebody who's selling herself to the highest bidder, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, selling her story mm-hmm. and and everything she says here about like you know nobody wants to believe the Death Eaters are back. It's against the public mood. So I won't be able to sell this, you know. Mm. And then her, her, I mean, I love the exchange where Hermione says the prophet exists to tell people what they want to hear. And like you quoted, the pro- she says the prophet exists to sell itself, you silly girl. Like that's another one of those great sort of political moments reminding us of the role of the mm-hmm. media, like both, yeah. in the, both in the Wizarding series and actually in the larger world. Yeah. That people should remember. Well, she, um, although also like she asks how much she's going to get paid for writing this. Like she does ask right. that. I mean, she's unemployed. She probably has to live off of, I don't know. She's probably done not got the world's greatest financial situation right now. So she does ask what she's going to get paid to write the article. And they tell her that she's not going to get paid anything. Luna I mean, says, my dad doesn't care about making money, <laughs> you know, sort of like in direct contrast yeah. to the more functional papers. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think my big question is why does she end up doing it? It's just because of the blackmail. Do you really want to believe like that's a cold interpretation? Like it's just because of blackmail. How can I? What's what's in it for me? Yeah, for for either a good story because I think she always, you know, whenever she talks to people, she always goes for that jugular. You know, she always <laughs> goes for the heart, the the place where you can find conflict, the place where you can find a story where people don't get along or where people can. Um, are hurting the most. It's and just so. I think th- I think that's just an instinct for her at this point. It's basically, brilliant that Hermione's using her as sort of a counter insurgent, or just to like go the other yeah. way, like yeah. in this. Gym. Well, I and I think to kind of clarify what I was saying before, like I don't think Reed is a good person. Still, um, in fact, there's a beautiful. Uh, it's it's a one sentence or no a two sentence paragraph, but it says, "Daddy will be pleased," said Luna brightly. A muscle twitched in Rita's jaw. Like <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like she doesn't. Oh, so most of her doesn't want to be doing this, but I think I think there is something to be said about the fact that it does come out, like all this comes out, and it is from Rita's pen. I mean, she does go back to doing what she does best later books, you know, doing the Dumbledore thing. But for a moment here, I like to believe that a couple of those weeks in that jar really did her some good. Do you think it was that long? I was going to say, oh, Hermione, that's bordering on. Um, well, didn't she capture know, her before the end of Goblet of Fire? Or no, was it the hospital uh-huh. ward, maybe? Was that? A couple, yeah, a couple of days. In my mind, it's like weeks yeah. and months. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> in my mind, Hermione is much more dangerous than we, than we think. Well, I think that's a legitimate thing. I mean, I think she's much more dangerous than anybody lets on. But yeah, so there you have it. That's the Beetle at Bay. Wow. Why is the chapter so named? Does anybody understand? Um, what well, at, like, like hounds at bay are like when hounds are hunting a fox or something, I think. So oh. like, or, 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 or maybe it's a fox at bay. I forget. It, it, it's a hunting metaphor. Something oh, okay. being at bay. 
So, um, so I think it would mean that the beetle is being hunted. Oh, the beetle being Rita, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And they're, they're keeping her, they're kind of like forcing her to do something. The Rita, yeah, the beetle is under their power, is under their, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. Is, is the object of their, uh, attention and, and within their power. I'm glad that, uh, Harry and Cho's date didn't have any bugs in, in it. <laughs> you know, I was just like, <laughs> I was like, at one point we're going to get to the beetle. But I'm glad it's not during like a beetle in his tea or something. <laughs> like, oh, I know gross. it was. It was. It's. It's so funny because she has these chapters named um, for one event that occurs in them, but so many other events occur in them. And so mm-hmm. I was expecting. Mm-hmm. I think I remember expecting a bug to pop out during the date, <laughs> during Harry's date. Um, but that was just silly fifteen-year-old wow. nonsense. So I was going to say that's fifteen-year-old yep. boy for you. <laughs> Ooh, there's going to be bugs. So now it's time for the podcast question of the week, and this week's question is as follows. The classic moment of this chapter is, of course, Harry and Cho's disastrous date. The fandom has put a lot of blame on Cho for the failure of this relationship, but was there ever perhaps a chance for this to be compatible? What about Cho's personality might have made this relationship work? Could she have ever reached Harry in a different way? And what could Harry have done better on his end of the relationship? So that's the question. Make sure you leave us your responses on the uh, main page and on the forums, and maybe we'll read your comment next week. And of course, before we close out, we do want to thank you again, Cheryl, so much for joining us. It has been amazing. I hope you've had a great time. It has been really fun to go back in my Harry Potter roots here and chat with y'all. I had a good, really good time. Thank you. Remind our listeners or tell our listeners where they can find you out in the uh, interwebs. I have a website, which is CherylKlein.com. Uh, I am on Twitter as Shavelake, which is fairly weird, um, C-H-A-V-E-L-A-Q-U-E. And I actually co-host a podcast myself. Um, it's Ooh. called The Narrative Breakdown. And uh, it is a podcast I do it with uh, James Monahan, who is a TV and film editor. And uh, to, we talk about all different forms of narrative and storytelling and writing, um, how, you know, how you can tell stories from a first person point of view or what it's like to construct a video game or how to write a good query letter if you're an aspiring writer. So you can find that at the narrative breakdown.com. Is that on iTunes as well or no? And that is on iTunes. Absolutely. Okay, cool. I am just excited to see what JK Rowling does next. I mean, you know, she has, I think every move she has made since Potter has been really interesting and surprising and shown her like trying to grow as a writer um, the whole Robert Galbraith thing. Yeah. Um, I have oh. to tell you, I have to tell you, when that was revealed, I was actually at my bachelorette party with <laughs> Melissa Anelli of the Leaky Cauldron. <laughs> and so, Jay, let's like in the middle of my bachelorette party, um, like Melissa had to go off and like post this gigantic news. Right. And, then half, and then half of the rest of my bachelorette weekend was devoted to discussing. I was going to say, you all just choices. showed up in, in like to the, at the bookstore, like just to get a bunch of books. Like, like uh, maybe you're on a party bus. You're just like driver detour, Bards and Noble. Right, go. Right. <laughs> so, um, and then I think Melissa was heading to my wedding a couple months later. And that's the morning that, um, that they announced that the uh, Fantastic Beast movie were going to be made. <laughs> and so, and so wow. Melissa and I were joking, I just need to keep having wedding events, and we just keep getting together. I know, you pick good dates, but, Cheryl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, so anyway, I, I just, I love reading what she writes, and I'm just looking forward to whatever that will be for whatever age group. Beautiful. 
And um, this is just a tidbit. So I went to, speaking of Melissa, um, I went to the um, Kazu's panel, which you moderated at LeakyCon. And if I remember correctly, you... Are you, are you one of the people on the box set? I am. That is correct. Okay, which which I remember thinking that is the coolest thing ever. I want to be a person on the Harry Potter what, box what set. If you Just if saying. you look at the image of um of Hogsmeade on the seven book box set that Kazu Kibuishi illustrated for us. Um, if you look very closely at all the windows, there um, there are various people associated with the publishing of the series in inside the windows. Oh. I think I think in Zonko's there's a bald man, and that's actually our art director David Saylor, and there's an Asian man, and that's Kazu, oh. and then up in one of the upper windows there's another bald man, and that's my boss Arthur Levine, <laughs> and and I think I'm in that picture too, although I'm very hard to see, and I'm the blonde one, and then my favorite is is definitely like in the window over Zonko's you can just see a really pretty blonde woman with writing at a desk with a candle mm-hmm. and that is JK Rowling. Oh. And yeah. um so, so I, I so love cool. those little Easter eggs built into it. Gosh, I love that idea so, that she too. just wrote that she just transcribed what she was watching. Like as she was walking around right. Hogsmeade. Right. Oh, we we all want that to be true. Let's be honest. Yeah. So, um, so there you go. Well, if uh, you, the listener, would like to be on our show, uh, all of the details and information that you need to find out uh, how to do that would be over on our website, which is alohomora.mugglenet.com. Uh, certain things like Apple headphones will make it easy for you, but otherwise there is a whole exhausting list of steps uh, on becoming one of our hosts. So go check that out. I think it's actually only like a three-sentence paragraph. I heard it was exhausting So from our previous guest. Oh. Oh, well, that might be the thing that I send out after. Oh, okay. Well, go check out our site and decide for yourself whether or not it's <laughs> inviting. I feel like we haven't had a shortage of, of guests, so... We yeah, have So not. it must be not. easy enough. <laughs> it is. In the meantime, of course, if you just want to keep in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at AlohomoraMN, Facebook.com slash OpenTheDumbledore, on Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. Of course, our Snapchat account is MN underscore Alohomora. Our phone number, 206 Go Albus, 206 <laughs> You like how I do the go? Yeah. Anyway, Audio Boo, which of course is free and all you need is an internet connection and a microphone. You can leave us a message on alohomora.mugglenet.com. Just keep it under 60 seconds, please. Also, uh, there's the store on the website. Check that out. Uh, apparently, there's sandals, a couple of other things. New house shirts. Yay. And also, don't forget that there are ringtones there on the website that are free. So check those out. Also, there's the app, uh, the Alohomora app, which is available seemingly worldwide. If uh, electronics worked at Hogwarts, you can bet that all of the students would be on this app. Every week we have transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings, host vlogs, and more. Um, So go check that out for both uh, iOS and Android. Uh, Once again, I am Eric Skull. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 103 of Alohomora. Open... (laughs)
Is there a great Harry Cho fan fiction? There surely must be. Yes, it's called Tears, a love story. (laughs) (laughs) An ocean of tears. I'm going to write my own. The hose pipe redeemed. (laughs) 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 Oh, oh, I'm joking. (laughs) 